0: Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whenever you're listening. This is Davisville on KDRTLP 95.7 FM in Davis, California. You can find us online at kdrt.org slash Davisville. I'm Bill Buchanan. Thank you for tuning in. Well, we're talking today about Twitter and social media, and Twitter is in turmoil. The bedlam of this social media platform is a big story, even for people who never use Twitter, because of the influence that it has. Of course, the extent of that influence is changing by the day as the story changes. There's also some big personalities involved here, of course, with Elon Musk. And in the larger picture, Twitter is uh, has been a significant part of social media, which is changing the ways that people see and engage each other that I think we're still working to understand. Well, by the time this program airs, maybe Twitter has calmed down maybe it's gone away. More likely, something in between. My guest today can help us understand what's going on and why it matters. This is Cindy Shen. She is a professor of communication at UC Davis. She is a social media expert and also a researcher into this subject. She's joining us today by Zoom. Cindy, thank you for spending time with us today on Davisville.
1: Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: So as of our discussion this afternoon, and we're talking just a few days before Christmas, Billionaire business entrepreneur Elon Musk still controls Twitter, but has just been told by his own survey of Twitter users, this was a poll that he initiated and did himself, the majority of those people who responded said that he should exit as head of Twitter. This is happening about two months after he bought the company and began firing people, banning accounts, changing policies, reversing his decisions, and so on. I'd love to get your take on what's happening here.
1: Oh, Bill, where, where do I start? So I've been observing the changes he implemented at Twitter since day one. And it's been an extremely eventful two months, as you described. And as we speak, there are still many changes being implemented by the hour. So I would say that the new ownership of Twitter has significantly impacted how Twitter is functioning or is perceived as a social media platform. So fundamentally, Twitter is an advertising business. And we often think of it as a tech business, but it is fundamentally an advertising business. This is where its revenue comes from, is from ad sales. And Elon Musk claims that he wants to liberate Twitter, right? Free speech is all the rage. He wants to get rid of censorship, et cetera. These are the very grand promises he made at the beginning of the acquisition. However, As we have seen, the robust content moderation Twitter once had is extremely crucial for its ad business. We see that advertisers, they do not care as much about free speech as much they care about where their ads are placed and who would see those advertisements. Now, if the site is full of racist comments and hate speech, as we have seen over the past few weeks, advertisers will notice and they will leave. And that is exactly what happened.
0: It is a business to him now. It was losing money when he bought it. He is right about that. And now that it's a privately held company, he only has to disclose finances uh, to a limited degree. And I haven't heard anything yet that indicates how he's doing financially. Not that I'm asking you to mind read Elon Musk, but do you think this is what he intended? Or did he just sort of grab hold of something maybe that he doesn't really understand?
1: I think your comment that he didn't quite understand it probably is closest to the truth. Of course, we can all speculate, but nobody really knows uh, what is going on with Elon Musk and what his intentions were. But my read of the situation is that he wanted to be this free speech warrior. He wanted to leverage Twitter as a platform to maybe amplify his own personal brand. Uh, However, fundamentally, he does not understand uh, the logic of Twitter's business as well as he thought he did. And therefore, we're seeing all these very haphazard changes happening overnight. Sometimes he implemented a change. Sometimes he had to roll back. Everything signals that he does not really understand how Twitter works and how to turn it around. And I also don't think he really understands very well how content moderation works either so he claims that you know free speech is so important and you know we shouldn't censor people's speech etc cetera, etc cetera. but there are laws there are very yeah. robust laws in place for example the european union has more robust laws regarding content moderation on social media platforms than we currently have in the united states and twitter as a company has to abide those laws and all these actions happening in the last two months signals that he doesn't really understand that very well. Another point is that for an advertising business, uh, free speech is really not at the core of the business logic. And I don't think by implementing the so-called free speech, he is going to magically turn Twitter around. Probably quite the contrary. If he get rid of the content moderation mechanisms that were present at Twitter, advertising revenue has suffered greatly. Another thing he implemented is the $8 Twitter Blues subscription plan. And at the very beginning, he is selling these $8 per month subscription to anyone who is willing to pay for it. But in the past, everyone who wants to have this blue badge, they have to go through a very kind of painstaking process. Not everyone uh, can be verified. And then a verification badge is not something that can be bought. And it's precisely the fact that verification cannot be bought makes them so valuable, right? Uh, Because these are costly signals. And then he got rid of those.
0: Yeah. Well, and that was the idea of, of Twitter originally, right? Was that someone can impersonate somebody, but if you saw, you know, Stephen King has been big on Twitter right. lately. You know, it's got a check mark. You think, all right, I really am hearing from Stephen King on this. So you've used Twitter a long time. I found something that you posted in November when this change was starting. And I'll just quote it. You said, the truth is, despite all its problems, I love Twitter. I truly do. Still holding hope that Twitter would survive this totally preventable mayhem. And I'm wondering, what is it you loved about Twitter? It wasn't making money. What did it need that it didn't have?
1: Right. I love Twitter because this is where everybody is. So, there are actually many different social media platforms with very similar functionalities like Twitter. So, in terms of functions, the Twitter is really not unique. And it's actually pretty easy to copy Twitter, right? It's not that technologically sophisticated, and the functions are simple. The key is not the functions. So there are many, many kind of Twitter-like platforms. For example, we know Facebook. You know, Facebook could totally, you know, realize the same functionalities as Twitter. Take the example like Instagram, right? Instagram is mainly known for its image sharing, but you can also realize Twitter-like functions on Instagram. LinkedIn is another example. So in terms of functions, there are actually many sites on which you could have twitter like communications with each other and, and these functions are not that uh, difficult to realize there are, you know there could be twitter copycats as we have seen post the acquisition so the problem is really not the functions why i love twitter is because twitter is the only social media platform used in the way that it has been used since its inception it's short form communication and this is the site where the most people are That's what makes Twitter so unique and so difficult to replace. Functionally, we have the the big giants like Facebook, like LinkedIn, like Instagram, but none of them are used in a way that is Twitter is used.
0: The reach of Twitter extends beyond the platform itself, am I hearing? Because, Mm -hmm. Because I think in terms of total users, a large number of adults say they never use Twitter. A large number of Twitter users use it rarely, if at all. But your point maybe is that it has influence beyond its numbers. Why did that one catch on as opposed to some of the others that that are similar?
1: You know, why something catches on instead of others? That's a really difficult question to answer because we're talking about like a survivor's bias, right? Because Twitter Mm. survived as sort of the winner in this space of competitors. And it was used specifically for public communication and short form communication. While well, Facebook or WhatsApp or LinkedIn, they're used somewhat differently. I also use Facebook, but I would never go to Facebook for Twitter-like content because Facebook for me is sort of semi-private. So I share status, I share photos with the group that I curated myself. So let's say I have 500 friends on Facebook. I share stuff with them. But Twitter is different in that anybody can share stuff with the entire world, so to speak. So Twitter is the only platform that has a critical mass that is used for public communication. Okay, And I think that's fundamentally different from some of the other social media platforms.
0: Okay, so... One way or another, it caught on. And I, I understand it's quite popular, or has been at least, again, with uh, mm-hmm. academics and journalists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it tends to be a way to spread news differently than right. than LinkedIn or, or Instagram or so on. Do you still love Twitter with all of the turmoil?
1: I'm reluctant to say that I still do. I still use Twitter quite a bit. But the site with all the turmoil has sort of decreased its value for me day by day. So I think we might be approaching a point where the utility does not outweigh the cost of staying on the platform. And I've seen a lot of people in the past week, past two weeks, have reached that point. So for example, a very prominent Silicon Valley personality, Paul Graham, he used to back Elon Musk and it was very kind of hopeful about the changes Elon Musk is going to bring. Through Twitter. And then finally, over the past weekend, he said, I'm done with Twitter. And at that particular time point, Twitter just wrote out a new policy of you you cannot advertise any competitors at all. Any URL posted or any kind of handle posted for other alternative platforms will be automatic account suspension. So in that way, ironically, Paul Graham, the early backer of Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, got suspended because he posted his uh, URL handle to an alternative social media platform. So for a lot of people, I think we're approaching that point. And even though I still like Twitter, I think Twitter has tremendous value. I've been thinking about whether I need to migrate to a different platform.
0: I haven't seen any numbers, maybe you have, that indicate what kind of erosion there is. Uh, I have seen posts by Musk and others claiming the site's getting more traffic than ever. So I don't know if that's if you know that to be true or if that's just him asserting it, although spectacles do attract audiences. That's part of the nature of social media. But I've seen some people just sort of stop posting. And then I've seen some people actually quit their accounts. And so I guess Mm -hmm. there's two ways to withdraw from Twitter. The former, if you stop posting, maybe you're sort of taking a wait and see attitude. I have Mm -hmm. wondered at what point we might get a tipping point or critical mass. I suppose yes. it depend partly on whether an alternative comes along that really sort of catches on. Like you hear talk about Mastodon, but I keep hearing, well, it's kind of hard to set up and, you know, it doesn't yeah. have the audience yeah. scope. You know, that could be enough to keep people from using it.
1: I very much agree. So Mastodon is, I think, the closest alternative to Twitter at this point. So most of the academics I follow on Twitter, they migrate to Mastodon. Another competitor is Post. Matzadon has been around for a long time. It is open source. It's difficult to use. Its user interface is not as easy or fancy as as Twitter's. Post is something that's developed right after Musk's acquisition of Twitter. So it's very new. For both of these sites, the functionalities are there. And as I said, functionalities are very easy to copy. It's the people that's very difficult to yeah. recreate. So Matodon has a much larger user base than Post. However, Matodon's user base still is not at a scale that is similar to Twitter.
0: I'm picturing that Elon Musk has a certain amount of time to either get it right or he's going to lose it because Twitter is established. Right. I mean, that's the question, I guess. If this were capital, you'd be talking about burn rate. He's burning, perhaps, his audience. At a certain point, they they go away, and uh, maybe someone else picks up the pieces.
1: Exactly, and I think people actually have been very forgiving to Musk's you know tinkering of Twitter. So I, at the very beginning, a lot of people say, "Okay, I quit Twitter. I'm moving to Matadon." But uh, what what my observation is that actually a lot of them are still on Twitter. Maybe they're not posting as often, but they are kind of in a wait and see mode to see how, how bad can this go? Or, you know, maybe this is still salvageable. So people actually cut uh, musk a lot of slack or they have been incredibly forgiving. And going back to a value of social media platforms such as Twitter, the value really lies in how large the network is. Okay, so Twitter okay. could be, because because of the user base it's huge compared to alternatives. Yeah. That's where the Twitter's value is. It's because this is where everything happens. A yeah. few weeks back, I was uh, closely monitoring the white paper revolution, the protests happening in China. And Twitter is the place to go to read about all these updates uh, posted by people from you know all over China and there are no alternatives. I've been thinking really hard. Where do I go if Twitter doesn't exist? The answer is, I don't have an alternative. This is where citizen journalism lives. This is where you know you go to get the latest information, cool. and there there are no no alternatives. This is right. kind of the central clearinghouse, and yeah, that cool. makes Twitter so so difficult to leave.
0: quick station ID. We are talking with Cindy Chen. She is a professor of communication at the University of California, Davis. And we are talking about Twitter and social media. I'm Bill Buchanan. This is Davisville on KDRT. So you're talking about the white paper revolution in China. Now, as I understand it, Twitter, it's extremely restricted in China. How accessible is it? I mean, is, is this a question of your learning over here, stateside? What's going on there? Are folks in China able to access Twitter?
1: Yes and no. I would say the majority of the people in China, they cannot access Twitter because Twitter is blocked. Uh, So are other major social media platforms like Facebook, these are all blocked in China. However, people have found out alternatives for accessing these social media platforms is through something called virtual private network or VPN. So very tech -tech savvy or like younger generation Chinese, they are able to bypass uh, what they call the gray firewall the censorship machine, so they can buy, a uh, subscribe to VPN services. Uh, usually those servers are located and, in other countries outside of China. And then if they get access to these VPN services, they are able to bypass the gray firewall. This is definitely not everybody. It's a very small minority of the Chinese population. Nonetheless, because everything related to protest is heavily censored, in Ch- uh, on Chinese social media, uh, like WeChat and Weibo. Therefore, people actually go to, they are going to great lengths, you know, subscribe to VPN and then go to these censored overseas social media sites, such as Twitter, to access the most recent information. Yeah. So it's a very long-winded way of getting information about where you are physically, but it still works.
0: We should probably explain the white paper protests that you're talking about, these stemmed from the precipitating event was the COVID lockdowns in, in China and exactly. people saying we, we've had enough for that. And but of course, it taps into other issues as well. I'm reminded listening to you here. I mean, this is the serious side of all this. So right. often social media, you know, traffics in memes and dog videos or cat videos or what have you. But obviously, when you're talking about that, you're talking about uh, serious issues. And oh, uh, exactly. And a means to communicate that gets past the structures that a, a, a system or a, a culture can put up the the censorship structures. I mean,
1: right. So when we are talking about Twitter, especially in the United States context, we often kind of assume that the main, main Twitter users are people living in the United States. But you know, Twitter is a global platform. Uh, I haven't done any research uh, or have any recent statistics, but uh, I know that uh, United States users are only one component of the Twitter users, but yeah. Twitter is very global. And there are protests such as the white paper protests, and they use Twitter for communicating with each other and coordinating their actions, um, and I'm, I'm certain there are other parts of the world where Twitter is the most viable platform for mobilizing and coordinating social movements.
0: Yeah. You know, I want to talk about social media in general a little bit and take advantage of the fact that got you on the air here and asked some of these larger questions. Social media gets a lot of blame for making people mentally ill, for wasting time, for jolting people with, you know, approval, likes, or, or outrages. You know, did you see this outrageous thing? Quick, react. Is that blame deserved?
1: This is an excellent question. I think the answer to such a complex question is that it really all depends. I'm against making a blanket statement saying that all oh, social media are evil, or social media make the world a better place. I think these are extremely complex platforms. And like all extremely complex technology, we can't really say that this is good or this is evil. It has to be Contextualized for specific individuals, uh, for specific purposes, and in specific conditions. So, if we're talking specific terms, I would say Twitter has played a very positive role in disseminating information and coordinating protests or social movement in this instance of white paper revolution in China. And I would say indirectly, it probably prompted or helped prompted some of the rollback of the zero COVID policies. So in a sense, it actually helped implement policy changes on a very large scale. But on the other hand, I have seen a lot of cases where social media may not be playing such a positive role in people's lives. And if we think about adolescents who, because of their You know, addictive use of social media. Some unfortunately uh, harmed themselves. Some unfortunately committed suicide. And a lot of cases where adolescents' mental health took a turn for the worse because of their use of social media. I think all these cases exist. And we can't, you know, say that because of that, social media is bad or because of that, social media is good. I think very nuanced and very careful consideration has to take place. And then, I personally think that the government uh, should really take a more proactive role in regulating social media platforms. And the social media platforms themselves are calling the government to do more as well, because otherwise they become the people that are making the rules. And actually, I don't think they want to be put into that position either.
0: Well, Elon Musk seems to be wanting to avoid that, but how, how would you regulate it? What sort of Are you talking about on content or more about access or, you know, parental controls? What sounds good to you?
1: Again, this is a super complex question. I think for starters, I think probably more parental control is a good idea. Oftentimes, I mean, social media companies, they said, you know, on paper, they implement parental controls. But from my own personal experience, I think those parental control mechanisms are extremely easy to bypass. So to me, that indicates that these parental control mechanisms are not robust enough. If a teenager who's underage has the will, they are able to bypass these parental controls. And maybe the social media companies know about that. And maybe they're turning a blind eye, right? Because this is the demographic they would like to capture. So from a bottom line perspective, they're probably... Not doing what they should be doing, so so yeah. that's just from my personal experience
0: there's a there's a tension there between the desire to get profit and the desire to do it the right way. i I right. come from a newspaper background, and one thing that has always struck me about the social media companies is basically they have found a way to provide free, well, content we call it now. And they also found a way to set it up so that they weren't responsible for what they were posting. That's playing with fire. I mean, one thing you learn as a newspaper editor, reporter, or whatever. You know, you try to do your job in such a way that your work is credible and that it can mm-hmm. stand up. And legally, you can be held accountable for it. It's difficult in terms of libel and such. But there are ways that you can come after somebody for lying. Social media just spews lies all over the place as well as the good side. But in listening to you, I'm also struck that, you know, when when the printed word first came out, some people said, well, this is so dangerous, people reading. Mm-hmm people had to learn how to read, I guess, how to use it. And I've wondered if maybe we're in that era, maybe it's an experiment where as users, we're going to have to learn how to use social media, how to spot deep fakes, how to be skeptical without being cynical, how to disagree without pulling out the hammers and tongs on each other. You're studying social media. That's in the thick of this fight. Does this make sense to you that we're sort of having to figure this out this way?
1: Absolutely Bill. So I teach a course called social media and actually during the first week of, of my uh, undergraduate course on social media, I always I always talk about the perspectives uh, we have on technology. And no matter what the technology is, those perspectives are strikingly similar to each other. So one technology I always mention is the printing press. And we don't even think of the printing press as technology now, right? because you know uh, it's everywhere. But then there was a time when printing press was considered a novel technology. And as people perceive all novel technologies, usually we go through phases. So the first phase is usually called the technological determinism. That is, technology is perceived as this causal agent, and it brings changes to the society. And then under this perspective, there is one that's very utopian. That is, oh, the technology is going to change the world for the better. And there's also the dystopian perspective, right, where the technology is going to make us you know, slaves and it's going to change our life for the worse. And I see these narratives play out every time. It had played out for the printing press. It had played out for things like self-driving cars. It had played out for something like social media platforms. I remember initially uh, that that's about fifteen years ago when Twitter just came out. Everybody was so hopeful, right? When Facebook just came out, everybody was so hopeful. Uh, these technologies are going to connect people all over the world, right? We're going to have a global village. Uh, we're going to be so much more connected with our loved ones, etc. And to some extent, they they do they did. But then we're probably in the second phase where. We're seeing the harms brought by technology, so it's all very dystopian. Like the self-driving cars, oh, you know, they're going to make uh, driving skills obsolete. Or you know, what are we going to do when there's a software malfunction and the cars are going to crash, and then we're going to get killed because of self-driving cars, etc. And social media is the same, right? So it's making our mental health worse. It's spewing all these lies, uh, deep fakes, you name it.
0: We don't have a a lot of time left, but I want to ask, with your research and your work, do you Mm -hmm. think we'll figure it out? Do you think we'll figure out how to use social media for us rather than sort of be oppressed?
1: Bill, we always do. No matter what the technology is, we always figure it out. I think over time, as people become more accustomed to the technology, we don't see technology as this causal agent. Uh, We realize that humans have agency as well. So we're not like sitting ducks. We're just receiving whatever effects brought by the technology. Instead, we have a say about how we want to use the technology, maybe to maximize its positive impact and minimize its harms. Yeah, I think think one important part of this is to have digital media literacy. That's what I'm trying very hard to teach in my social media class as well. So digital media literacy may include things like you need to understand the influence social media is having on you. For example, do not fall for, you know, Something, something that has been uh, reshared by the friend of your uncle and stuff like that. You know, do not take everything for granted. Do not think of everything you encounter on social media as real. I think that's a very important aspect of digital media literacy. And then, how do you verify the information received on social media. For example, you need to know what the source is, right? Locate the source. You need to triangulate. So if you see something from one source, maybe try to find it from a different TV station, different newspaper, you know, someone else. So all these aspects contribute to the general literacy about social media and digital media. And I think as consumers, as users, we also have the responsibility to educate ourselves and be more literate and be, be a more literate participant in the digital media ecosystem.
0: Well, I think that's a good note to end on. And I like that you've given us some practical advice on how to approach it. Cindy, thank you for talking with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Bill.
0: We've been talking with Professor Cindy Shen. She is a professor of communication at UC Davis. I am Bill Buchanan. And this is Davisville.